Hello there. You are listening to the MCC Sunday Sermon. We are so glad you could join us. We pray that this message will encourage you, build your faith on your journey with God. Enjoy. We started last week by talking about this year being a year of unusual favour. Just to the person next to you, say, you are highly favoured. Do you know that? You're highly, you're a highly favoured person. And so we spent last week talking about the fact that that this year is a year of unusual favour. And we looked at the the life of Noah. And and Noah's life really answers for us this question, what do you do when the favour of God finds you? Because that's actually the way that the Bible introduces us to Noah. That Noah grows, that Noah lives in a time that's incredibly wicked, a, a time period where people's hearts are, are away from God, so much so that God regrets he ever made mankind. But then in verse 8 of Genesis chapter 6, the Bible says, But in the midst of that, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. That the Noah never went looking for favor, that actually favor came looking for him. And so Noah's life really answers for us the question what do you do when the favor of God? finds you? And the answer is this, you do whatever it is God told you to do. And so last week we were talking about that, that, that when God's favor finds you, that what do you do with that favor? You do the very thing God asks you to do. Even if it seems ridiculous, Noah is building a boat in the middle of the desert. Even if it seems totally impossible, Noah believes that water is going to come from the sky. And the Bible tells us that in that time, that had never happened before. But regardless of who joins you, Right? For, for most of his life, Noah is the laughing stock of his generation because it takes him 120 years to build an ark in the middle of the desert because he's convinced that water is going to come from the sky. But of course, the flood does come. And whilst for 120 years, Noah seems so foolish, on the day that water came from the sky, Noah doesn't seem like a fool so much anymore. And so we ask the question, what do you do when the favor of God finds you? And the answer is, you do whatever it is he told you to do. And so to begin to act in faith, maybe to flow on from that message from last week, to begin to act in faith requires for you and I to silence the excuses that we usually make. That was true for Noah, but it's also true for us. Because here's the truth, that even if God were to say, this is what I have for you this year, here's the plans or the dreams that I have for you, here's the thing that I want to put into your hands to be able to do, that the truth of it is, is that you and I are far more well acquainted with our faults and our frailties and our failings than we actually are with the power of God. Now I'm saying this, maybe this doesn't apply to you, perhaps this only applies to me. But I've found in my life that even when God comes with some great plan or some great task, that actually I'm so well acquainted with my frailties and failings even sometimes more than God's own power. And so I can find myself beginning to make well-rehearsed excuses that keep me from the plans of God. And so this morning, I want to speak from this subject, excuses we should never give God. Excuses we should never give God. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we pray this morning? God, I pray this morning that you'd help me to be able to preach your word. That God, today we might leave this place different people. God challenged, encouraged, Lord inspired today. In Jesus' mighty name. Everybody said? According to a UPI news item, the Metropolitan Insurance Company received some unusual explanations for accidents for its motor vehicle policyholders. These were just a few of the unusual explanations they received. Here's the first one An invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my car, and then vanished. 
Here's another one that they received. The other car collided with mine without warning me of its intention. Number three, I'd been driving my car for 40 years when I fell asleep at the wheel and had the accident. Here's another. As I reached an intersection, a hedge sprung up, obscuring my vision. This is a personal favorite. Number five, um, I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. (laughs) Here's another that was received on an automobile policy holder. Um, The pedestrian had no no idea which direction to go, so I ran over him. Uh, Number seven, the telephone pole was approaching fast. I attempted to swerve out of its path when it struck my front end. Number eight, the guy... Uh, the guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. And, and here's the last one for this morning. The indirect cause of this accident was a little guy in a small car with a big mouth. <laughs> Excuses that we should never give God. You know, when the Bible introduces us to a guy called Gideon, Gideon appears well rehearsed in making excuses because he's afraid and he's angry. And maybe at some point in your life, you found yourself in the same position where because you're afraid or because you're angry or because of some other reason, you find yourself making well-rehearsed excuses. This is what the Bible says in Judges chapter 6 and verse 11. It says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Verse 13, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, then why has this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors have told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, notice that verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? When the Bible introduces us to Gideon, he's threshing wheat in a wine press. I've never threshed wheat in my life, but, but this is unusual even for, for Gideon's time. Because usually when you thresh wheat, you take the stalk of wheat and you beat it against the ground, but you do it in an open field or in an open plain somewhere. Because as the, the wheat hits the ground, the chaff or the husk that's on the wheat kind of breaks off and, and the grain falls to the ground and then the wind is able to blow the chaff away. And so at the end, you just collect up all of the, all the seed at the end and, and you can take your wheat with you. And so usually the practice of threshing wheat is done in some open place, some exposed place to, to the wind and to the elements for that very reason so that it's not time-consuming having to pick the, the grains of wheat out of the, the much larger amount of, of husk. And yet the Bible says that, that when Gideon is approached by the angel of the Lord, he's threshing wheat in a wine press. In other words, he's in somewhere enclosed. There's no wind. He's not doing that because it's convenient. He's doing that because he's afraid. Because at this period of time, that the Midianites are oppressing Israel and the Midianites would come in as raiders and they would take what Israel had. And Gideon is so afraid of losing what he's got that he's not threshing his wheat anywhere out in the open where he can be seen No, because that could be taken from him. So no, he's hiding away in a wine press, which is an incredibly time-consuming process because as he's beating and threshing the wheat, he's having to pick the grains individually out of all the husk 
that's, that's in the wine press, he shouldn't be doing it there. He, he should be doing it somewhere out in the open, but he's so afraid to lose the little bit that he's got that he's actually threshing wheat in a wine press. There is nothing strong or warrior-like or incredible about Gideon. Gideon, when we're first introduced to him, looks like a guy who's so scared of losing what he's got, he'll do anything out of fear. And it's at that moment the Bible says that the angel of the Lord comes to him. This is not just an angel. Most Bible scholars believe that this is actually a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. This is, this is God rocking up. This is not an angel. This is the angel of the Lord. In the same way that when Jacob was approached by the captain of the Lord's host, he, he wasn't just seeing an angel. He, he was seeing God himself. And so Gideon is here and he's threshing wheat. And so put yourself in this picture. He's threshing wheat because he's afraid in a wine press. And God comes to him and says, you mighty Warrior, and listen to the very next thing that Gideon says. He says, whoa, 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 pardon me, my Lord. Gideon replied, but, but if the Lord is with us, then, then why has all this happened to us? And where are the wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, didn't the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? And, and then God abandoned. And, and the very next thing that comes out of Gideon's mouth after God says, mighty warrior, is, is a whole lot of, whoa, 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 who are you calling mighty? When you read the whole passage here, what actually ends up happening is, is Gideon starts to be able to explain why are you calling me a mighty warrior? Like I'm the least in my family and, and my family's the least in our clan and our clan's like the least in all of Israel and, and we're like the least tribe. And, and so everything about Gideon is a well-rehearsed excuse as to why things are the way they are. But here's what I want you to be able to see this morning. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, I remember reading that and thinking, hold on. God comes to him and says, mighty warrior. Then Gideon starts rehearsing all of these excuses as to why he's not. And then the Bible says, and the Lord turned to him and said. In other words, at some point in the conversation where Gideon starts to rattle off his excuses for not being mighty and not being a warrior and not seeing God's power at work in his life, God actually just turns his back on Gideon's excuses. Like, that's a rude thing to do, right? But that's literally what happens. God comes to him. Gideon starts to make all of his excuses. God turns his back. And then verse 14, Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? The minute that Gideon started to make excuses, God turned his back on the excuses, only to have to turn back to Gideon. The Lord turned to him, not because he was disinterested in what Gideon had to say, and not because he was disappointed in Gideon, and not because he didn't agree with Gideon, God turned his back on the excuses Gideon was making because he's waiting for Gideon to finish so that he can give him something new. And so Gideon was well rehearsed in making excuses, but God wasn't having a bar of those excuses because God was calling Gideon to something higher. And so I want to speak to us this morning from this subject, excuses we should never give God. If God's favor is upon us, to be able to do the things that God's asked us to be able to do, then the first thing we've got to do is begin to silence the excuses we've rehearsed in our life. Here's the first excuse we should never make. Never say, I am too busy. Never say, I'm too busy. Have you noticed that our culture kind of wears busyness like it's a reward? that we have more labor-saving devices than ever before in history, and yet we still seem to have less time and not enough time to do the things we actually want to do. 
Do you know in the 1960s that futurists thought that the problem of our age would actually be too much leisure? This is legit, okay? In the 1960s, futurists all over the world thought that by now we would all be working way fewer hours. That at one Senate subcommittee in 1967, that's not that long ago, a Senate committee um, in 1967 was told that by 1985, the average American would work 22 hours a week and for only 27 weeks a year. Everybody thought that the problem for the future would be that there'd be too much leisure because of all the time-saving devices we would have by this stage. They were predicting that for 1985. And yet, our culture is kind of obsessed with busyness. That, that even when you ask people, how are you doing, right? And I've noticed we're two weeks into a new year. I've noticed myself doing this. How are you doing? I'm good. Just back into it. Things are full. There's just a lot happening right now. And we kind of almost wear it like a badge of honor in, in our culture. I was reading a book recently that was given to me, and, and part of the, the book, they sort of explain that luxury brands, you might have read this book, it's The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And, and part of what they point out is that 50 years ago, luxury brands, that the sign of success was leisure. And so to sell luxury brands like watches and bags and things like that, the the imagery that would be used would be people playing golf or, or, or perhaps lounging by the side of a pool in the south of France because leisure was seen as a marker for success. But over the last 50 years, that's changed, and you see it reflected even in our advertising, that, that even in our advertising, things like Rolex or luxury watches and bags and brands that don't show somebody beside a pool in the south of France, they show a high-powered executive flashing their watch in a board meeting staying at the office late and then going out for drinks afterwards or hopping onto a plane for, for business, not for leisure. That, that even our idea around busyness has kind of changed. That, that somehow it's seen as that is the marker of success, is to be busy. And our culture kind of creates that. that. That we're busy and we have a culture that's obsessed with busyness. But busyness is not an excuse that we can use to put God's plans on pause. Because sometimes, and maybe this is true for you, it's certainly true for me, but we can confuse activity with achievement. That God has a great achievement in mind when he calls Gideon. God has in mind that Gideon will deliver Israel out of oppression from the Midianites. But Gideon doesn't have time for freedom. He's too busy hiding. Because he's confused activity with achievement. And sometimes God does the same thing for us, that, that God comes with this plan or this idea or this dream, but, but we're so busy doing these other things that we actually don't have room left for that. Sometimes it's because we're busy doing other things. Sometimes it's because we're procrastinating. Sometimes it's because we don't know how to manage our time well, but we find the excuses anyway, right? Bo Bennett said this, not managing your time and making excuses are two bad habits. Don't put them together by claiming that you don't have the time. In the Old Testament, there's a book called the Book of Jonah. And it tells a story of a prophet that God comes to. And essentially the story of Jonah is, is that God asks him to go to the Ninevites and to preach. And Jonah doesn't. He goes in the exact opposite direction. He heads to Tarsus. He doesn't have anything to do with it. And, and when you read the whole book of Jonah, you realize that Jonah's not going to Tarsus because he wants to be disobedient to God. That's not his primary reason. Jonah actually tells us why he goes to Tarsus. He says, God, I know what you're like. 
I'm going to go to these Ninevites and preach, and they're going to repent, and then you're going to forgive them because that's what you're like. But they don't deserve your forgiveness. The Ninevites historically were, were terrible people. They would kill people in the middle of childbearing, like in the middle of giving birth. They were an incredibly cruel group of people. And so Jonah literally says to God, I know what you're like. If they repent, you'll forgive them, and they don't deserve that. And so he heads to Tarsus, not because he wants to be disobedient to God, but because he has different priorities to God. And so if you know the story, you know what happens is is while he's heading in the exact opposite direction, a massive storm happens to come on the sea as he's on this boat, and the sailors can't work out what's going on. And so eventually Jonah kind of pipes up and says, I know why there's a storm. It's because I'm being disobedient to God. And they throw him overboard. And he's swallowed by a fish, and he spends three days in the belly of the fish, and eventually is then spat up on the shore of Nineveh. Here's the point. That whilst Jonah's priorities were different to God's, he was always heading in a different direction. So God had to send a fish to clear Jonah's calendar. So here's just a thought for us. Don't tempt God to send a fish to clear your calendar when your priorities don't line up with his. Never say to God, I'm too busy. Here's the second thing. You should should never use it as as an excuse. Never say, I'm not talented enough. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like there's, there's other people that are far more gifted than me? There's other people that are far more qualified than me, that there's other people that are far more suitable than me. And here's the truth. Everybody feels like that at some point. Because God has a habit of choosing people that we would usually dismiss because by doing so, he's the one who gets the glory. If you've ever felt like, I don't feel qualified to do this, right? I don't feel like I'm talented enough to do what God's asked me to do, then maybe, just maybe, that's a hint that you're precisely hearing right from God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 26, this is what Paul writes. He says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Verse 27, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Do you know what you are? You're a foolish thing. That if you feel like you're not talented, if you feel like there's other people that are more suited, better qualified, that you feel like, man, at some point someone's going to realize that that I'm not the right person for for this opportunity, then, then you're precisely in the right place because God has a habit of choosing the weak things to confound the strong and the foolish things to confound the wise. Like one of the best tombstones that could ever be written about your life, here lies Daniel Pappas. How the heck did that happen? Right? Because for the people who know you and know your history and know your background and and know the opportunity, they'll go, I don't know how on earth that guy did those things for God because we all know him. Isn't that kind of what happened to Jesus when he went to his hometown? They're like, Jesus, we, we know that. Messiah, really? But what a great thing that God does that he chooses the foolish things. And, and if you and I would just be willing to say, do you know what, God, I'm happy to be a foolish thing in your hand. 
There might be other people who are more talented. There might be other people who are more gifted. There might be other people who are more suited. But God, if you can use me, then let me be a foolish thing in your hand. Never say to God, I'm too busy. Never say to God, I'm not talented enough. Here's the third thing you should never say. You should never say, I'm the wrong age. For some of you, that means saying, I'm too old. For others of you, that means saying, I'm too young. But never say, I'm the wrong age. Here's a question. When are you supposed to be the right age? I don't know if you've noticed this, but it feels like for half of your life, you feel like you're too young. And then for the other half of your life, you feel like you're too old. So so when are you supposed to be the right age to do anything? I'm sort of approaching this point in my life, right? I had my birthday yesterday, and so I'm 36. Thank you. Thank you. Which doesn't feel that old, but Jonathan's like, 36, is that the same as 50? And I'm like, that's very different, Jonathan, to 50. The people who are 50 are really old. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, right? But I'm starting to approach that age where when I was Jonathan's age, I was looking at my parents thinking, man, they're so old. I'm approaching that. I feel like the right age is like somewhere three years from now. It's about five hours on a Thursday afternoon, but I'm not sure which Thursday afternoon it is. And at that point in time, I'm going to be the right age. But right up until that, I'm going to be too young. And after those five hours are over, I'm going to be too old to do anything else, right? I look at my dad now. My dad is 61 this year. He's 60, right? He's sitting in the back row. Just to point him out, because last week I said my dad was here and everyone's trying to work out who the heck is your dad. It's like a mystery game. You have to keep coming back every week on Sundays to work out who this guy is, right? And I look at my dad, he's 61. That's so old. I'm just teasing now. Or maybe, no, I'm just, I'm just teasing, right? But never say to God, I'm too busy. Never say to God, I'm not talented enough. Never say to God, I'm the wrong age. Abraham and Sarah felt like they were too old to have a child. Abraham was 100. In fact, when God said it to them, Sarah thought that was so ridiculous, she laughed. They felt like they were too old, that the plan of God was already well and truly past them, that, that, that God could never do this miraculous thing that he'd promised. And so if you've ever felt like you're too old, you're in good company. Abraham and Sarah felt like that. But if you've ever felt like you're too young, there's plenty of people in the Bible who felt that way too. Jeremiah thought that he was too young to be a prophet. In Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 6, this is what the, the Scripture says, Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I'm too young. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you and to say whatever I command you. And so Abraham and Sarah felt like they were too old. And And then Jeremiah felt like he was too young. And so if you don't feel like you're the right age to be used by God, that's okay. You wouldn't be the first person who's felt like that. In the book of Esther, there's a famous line that everybody's repeated. It's become the the tagline of every women's conference for the last two millennia, right? The Mordecai says to Esther, maybe you were born for such a time as this, right? If you've been to a women's conference, you've heard this, right? You were born for such a time as this. That is the stupidest line. Like, of course you are born for such a time as this. If God wanted you to be born at a different time, you'd be born at a different time. So, of course, Esther, this is the time in which you're born. God wants you to do it. Like, it's not rocket science. You were born for such a time as this, right? I haven't just destroyed, like, your verse for the year or anything like that. But, 
But of course you were born for such a time as this. If God wanted you to be born at a different time, he would. He would have made it so. But the fact that you're sucking oxygen on planet Earth right now in this time period is because God had planned it to be so. And so never say to God, I'm too busy. Never say to God, I'm not talented enough. Never say to God, I'm the wrong age. Here's the fourth thing you should never say to God. Never say to God, I don't know what to say. If you're new to church or new to faith, maybe you've found this excuse already, right? Like, I don't know enough about the Bible yet or... You know, I haven't been a Christian long enough yet. Or, you know, even if I was to speak, no one would listen. Like, if someone was to ask me a question, I wouldn't even know what to say. And and here's the truth. That, That you and I don't need to fathom every theological truth in order to be able to speak. Because what God's actually asked us to be is witnesses. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, this is what the scripture says. It says, but you will receive power. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You know, in a court of law, when a witness is called to the stand, they don't need to know everything that happened. They don't even have to have the answers. All they have to be able to tell is what they've seen, what they've heard, and what they've experienced. And so for you and I, if you've ever felt like, well, I don't know enough of the Bible for God to be able to use me. And and if someone was to ask me a question, I wouldn't even know where to be able to start. You know, the truth is you you don't need to know everything. All you need to know is what God did in your life. Because that's actually what God's empowered you to do is to be a witness. I don't know about all those other things, but here's what I know. I know what my life was like. I know what God did. And I know how things have changed since I can't testify to every truth that's in Scripture, and there's still parts of the Bible that I don't understand, but but what I do know is this. This is what my life was like. This is what God did, and, and this is how my life has changed. And I can be a witness to the experiences I've had in God. Charles Stanley said this. He said, God's plan for enlarging his kingdom is so simple. One person telling another about the Savior. Yet we're busy and full of excuses. Just remember someone's eternal destiny is at stake. The joy you'll have when you meet that person in heaven will far exceed any discomfort you felt in sharing the gospel. Here's the last one. Number five, never say, I've tried that already. For Gideon, it wasn't his lack of experience. It was actually his past experiences that were keeping him from stepping out. Gideon had seen the Midianites raid before. He'd seen Israel oppressed for his entire lifetime. And so he just assumed that the way things are is the way that they're always going to be. And so when God comes to Gideon, he's coming to Gideon because he wants to raise him up as a leader in his generation, to make him a judge of Israel, to to see the oppression of the Midianites lifted. And so it's it's not his lack of experience that's keeping him from believing that God wants to do this. It's actually his past experience. Maybe there was times in his life where he tried to stand up to the Midianites before and it hadn't gone so well. Or maybe he'd seen other people try and do that and then see their whole livelihoods and families destroyed as a result. And so, and so because of his past experiences, he, he's just decided, I've tried that, I've tried that already. I, I've tried that a long time ago and it didn't work then and it's not going to work now either. 
you know, I, I used to be involved in, in these different areas of church, but, you know, I kind of got burnt in that experience. And so I just, you know, I just kind of taken a bit of a back seat for right now. And I'm just going to see how this whole thing pans out. And, you know, it's, it's just easier that way. And, you know, I used to do and, you know, but, but I, and maybe you found yourself or maybe you've heard friends start to use this excuse. You know, I've, I've already tried that already. And for Gideon, it was true as well. That this had been his whole experience. This has been his whole lifetime. And so when God comes to him and says, you mighty man of valor, he's like, what are you talking about? I'm weak. I I mean, even if I wanted to, I I wouldn't stand up to the Midianites. I I mean, I've spent my whole life hiding. I'm threshing wheat in a wine press, for goodness sake. Like, Like, I'm afraid, and you're calling me a mighty man of valor? Let me tell you all the reasons why that's not true. By the time the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, it was, there was almost no fight left in him because Gideon had found a comfortable place to hide surrounded by his excuses. Here's the truth. That faith always requires action. And so when we start making excuses, our excuses create a little comfortable place for us to rest to settle down, and to stop. And really what I'm trying to challenge you this morning to do or encourage you to do this morning is to stop making excuses. Really what I'm trying to do is to unsettle you, right? Because God's got far more for you than you could possibly imagine. That God's plans for you are to prosper you. They are to give you a hope and a future. That you might have even tried some things in your own might before that haven't worked, and yet God is going to add his power to some of those dreams and see them come to fruition. But whilst ever we're settled and stopped and stayed, we can stay real comfortable in the excuses that we make. And we can even dress it up so it sounds like it's faithful. So it sounds like it's God honoring. You know, well, you know, if it's God's will, it'll just kind of happen. Well, you know, if it's God's will, he'll just kind of open the door. You know, if it's God's will, then, you know, it'll just miraculously materialize and fall out of heaven and land in my lap. But God doesn't do magic. God does miracles, which means that he chooses to include us in what he's doing. That God could have defeated the Midianites just on his own, but he didn't choose to do that. He chose to work through Gideon. Why? Because God's proven method is to work through people, which means for you and I to live faithful lives, we can't do that from a place of comfort. It actually requires us to get a little bit uncomfortable and begin to act. But when I first learned how to, how to drive, I learned how to drive in my dad's Ford Courier Ute. It didn't have any power steering. Jonathan will never appreciate this, but I feel like I'm just on the cusp of appreciating having to learn how to drive in a car without power steering. And, and when you learn how to drive in a car without power steering, you work out really quickly that it's impossible to turn a car that is not moving. The wheels have to be rolling forward for there to be any chance to be able to turn that wheel. And the same thing is true for us, that whilst we're stationary, we're asking God for direction, but he can give us none, right? But as we begin to just even roll, just begin to creep into gear, just begin to move in an area of faith again, that then all of a sudden it becomes a bit easier just to be able to give that moving vehicle a bit of direction. Here's the truth. God can use you while he changes you. If you're waiting for all the conditions to be perfect, if you're waiting until you've got all the ducks in a row, you'll never do anything great for God. 
None of these people have worked this out yet. But I'm not even a very good pastor. Don't tell anyone. Right? But God can use you while he changes you. If you'll be willing to be a little bit uncomfortable. If you'll be willing to be a little bit unsettled. If you're willing to be used by God. As the worship team comes back, you can boil down all the excuses. I I gave us five. I did have 153, but I thought that would be too long for the service. You you can boil down all of our excuses to to just really one thing. Us saying, "I, I can't do it. And you'd be right. You can't do it. At least not on your own. And God wasn't asking Gideon to do it on his own either. In verse 14, doesn't God say to Gideon, am I not sending you? Gideon comes up with all the excuses under the sun as to why he's not a mighty man of valor, as to why God can't use him, as to why he's weak and his family's weak and their clan is weak and the whole tribe is weak and the nation of Israel is weak. And he's really acquainted with his weaknesses. But God reminds him, yeah, Gideon, you can't do it. At least not on your own. But the beautiful thing is, am I not sending you? We make excuses to protect our comfort. But as we stand to our feet this morning and take a moment to be able to pray, would you stand? Would you be willing to become uncomfortable this year? Would you be willing to stop making the excuses that have have kept you from doing the things that God's placed in your heart to be able to do? Would you be willing to be used by God and silence the excuses and begin to do the very thing that God's placed in your heart to be able to do? To begin to use the bit of talent you've got. To begin to use the time and maybe change some of the priorities in your life in order to be able to use the time that you've got. To stop worrying about your age and just begin to make a start today. To not worry about I don't know what to say or will people even listen? But just begin to start where you're at. The Bible doesn't tell us what happens in this moment, but I wonder what it actually looked like when Jesus ascended to heaven, right? That Jesus says, you know, like, go and wait and I'll send the Holy Spirit and go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like, he he says all that, and then, and then the next part is like Jesus ascends into heaven like on a cloud. And the disciples and that are all standing there, right? The Bible doesn't say what the disciples like said next or even who said it. But can you imagine the moment they all looked at each other and they're like, all right, so the, the three and a half years is over. Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead. That was, that was I didn't see that coming. I should have seen it coming because Jesus shared it with us a fair few times over those three and a half years, but that was a, that was a plot twist for us. And then he ascended into heaven and it's like, so I guess we go and do that now, right? Imagine the disciples being left, Jesus is going, saying, just, just wait a moment, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And then go and be my witnesses to all of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That moment when they all look at each other and they're like, so I guess we go and do that now, right? And they might not have had it all together. They wouldn't have known how things were going to play out. But what they did know is that 
God was going with them. You and God make a formidable team, regardless of how weak you feel, regardless of how many excuses you've rehearsed in the past. The kids' ministry is learning from Ephesians 3 verse 20, daring faith, which says that God can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think or imagine according to this, according to His power that's at work within us. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning as we pray? God, I thank you this morning for every single person who's in this room. God, greatly loved by you. And Lord, I pray even right now that some of those lies we've told ourselves, that maybe even some of those reasons that have a half-truth to them, that the excuses we've made to sort of say, well, God couldn't use me or I can't do those things or there's other people that are better qualified than me, that God, all of those excuses, that even right now they begin to fall to the ground and become completely silent. And Holy Spirit, I ask right now that you would speak a word of truth into our hearts. God, that you do that even right now. That for each person who's in this room, it might sound slightly different, but it'll resonate the minute they hear it. That I'm going with you that I'm proud of you? Am I not sending you? That this time is not like the last time because I'm doing a new thing. God, that you would speak a word of truth into people's hearts today. That God, we wouldn't settle down and stop and become comfortable. But God, we would be willing to be uncomfortable for your purpose and for your plans in our life. God, in our families in our marriages, in our relationships, God, in our opportunities, and Lord, even for this church and community, that God, we'd be willing to be uncomfortable to be used by you in Jesus' mighty name. Just with every head bowed and every eye closed before we finish this morning's service, I want to give every person here this morning a chance to be able to respond to God. But we finish all of our services this way because I believe that this is actually the most important decision a person can ever make a decision to be able to put your faith and trust in Jesus. In a moment, I'm going to lead our whole church in a prayer. And maybe here this morning, you've never prayed a prayer like this before, or maybe a long time ago, you prayed a prayer like this, but you've walked away from God. You've walked your own way. It's a simple prayer that simply acknowledges this, that Jesus, I thank you that you love me. The Bible says that God proves his love for us in this, that Jesus died for us while we were still sinners while we were still well and truly away from Him, well before we ever believed in Him. Which means there's nothing we could do to make God love us more. There's also nothing we could do to make God love us less. He loved us before we loved Him. Secondly, that God, I ask you to forgive me of all of my mistakes. There's not a person in this room who doesn't have things that we regret, mistakes that we've made, things that we felt like pushed us so far from God that God had have nothing to do with us. But the truth of the Bible is, is that if you would ask for God's forgiveness, you would find that God's been way closer to you than you would ever have possibly imagined. He's only ever been one prayer away. Lastly, acknowledging that Jesus died for you. And as a result, you want to live for Him. And so maybe you're here today, maybe you've never prayed a prayer like that. Maybe you've never been to church before. This is your first time. You've never heard someone talk about God so much. Or or maybe you've been to church lots before, but... There's never actually been a moment where you stopped and you asked for God's forgiveness and you invited Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life. That's exactly what we're about to do. So if that's you, just with every head bowed and every eye closed, either you're praying this prayer for the first time or you're rededicating your life to the Lord, 
I want you to pray it and mean it in your heart as we pray. Pray this prayer out loud. Church will help us pray it too. Pray, dear Jesus, I come to you this morning and I realize that I need you. Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of all of my mistakes. Jesus, wash my heart completely clean. Jesus, I thank you that you love me, that you proved it when you died on the cross for my sin. Jesus, from this morning on, I want to live for you. I want to be a Christian. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and change my life. In Jesus' mighty name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. Thank you once again for joining us. Feel free to contact us on our Facebook, our website, and jump on our Instagram at mcc.church. Also, make sure to rate and review as well as share. Finally, from all the team at MCC, have a blessed day. And until next time, bless you.